This podcast is brought to you by, by, by Civic Tech Innovation Network in partnership with Voice of Vets. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Civic Tech in Africa podcast. My name is Natim Kajua, and we are so happy to have you join us again. Today, we are recording this right at the end of the Civic Tech Innovation Forum, which happened between the 13th and 17th of September. We've had some very interesting ideas, and we're introduced to some great initiatives from the African continent, and uh, definitely cannot wait for the next conference. Uh, we'll be doing a recap of the sessions with Sibabalwek Dalichana in a few episodes from now, so you may want to set up your notifications uh, for when we drop our next episodes. I'm not uh, here by myself. I'm joined by Jimmy Maliseni, a, a Zambian journalist who currently serves as the Senior Information and Advocacy Officer at the Alliance for Community Action in Lusaka, Zambia. I'm so excited to have you here, Jimmy. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, Nazi. Thank you very much for having me on uh, the show, and I do look forward to a wonderful discussion today. Uh, our guest today, Jimmy, is uh, Kevesha Pile from uh, Corruption Watch in South Africa. She is a social justice activist who is the head of stakeholder relations and campaigns at Corruption Watch. She joins us today to talk about the online tool that they developed called the Vesa Online Tool. We are so delighted to have her join us. How are you doing, Kavisha? Hey, Nati. I'm good. Thanks for having me. Today, we're talking about digital anti-corruption tools, Jimmy. You are moderating a session focused on the development of African anti-corruption tools at the CTIF. I'm curious to know from you what your feelings are about where we are as Africans in our ability to use tech to hold those in power accountable, uh, especially after moderating that session. Did you get some good feelings from that session? Absolutely. I, I did get some very good feelings from that session, Nati. Uh, so what uh, stood out for me, actually, is that regardless of the legal context and uh, regardless of the uh, legal impediments that civic actors are facing across the continent, there's still something that they're doing within that context to speak uh, truth to power using tech. But also what's most satisfying for me is that I didn't hear a single uh, participant on the panel talk about at least extensively outsourcing skills that they need. So they were talking more about internal resources. So people are looking inside. So you've got developers within the institutions, you've got innovations happening within the institutions. And I do believe that that's the direction that Africa begins uh, needs to uh, keep on and, and continue going. So when you're developing your own tools, you are always going to develop them to fit your context, to, to fit the challenges that you, you face at that particular time. But I was also happy with the pool of knowledge, really. So there was such, such knowledge that uh, it was amazing to be a part of that conversation, Nati. So from, from South Africa, where they've got this information that is available in the public, but you're not satisfied with it, you're still uh, pushing for more you asking for better quality of uh, outputs from uh, duty bearers. And of course, the Zambian context that is almost entirely closed. And then there was Kenya in there almost, you know, standing between Zambia and South Africa in terms of the challenges that we are facing. But all the same, everybody, nobody was defeatist in the way that they were speaking. Everybody was positive. Everybody was, was going to fight for their space. And I think that Natia came out from that session feeling that we are at the very least on the right track. Sure. All right. It seems like there's hope uh, for us uh, as civic tech uh, activists. So thank you, Jimmy, for that. Uh, Kavisha, uh, we're going to start with you a little bit before we go into the tools and, and, and Corruption Watch. I know you started off as a journalist uh, at Corruption Watch and, and you've recently qualified as a, as a data scientist. Tell us a, a little bit about that journey and, and why data piqued your interest in the first place. 
Thanks, Nati. So I started off at Corruption Watch maybe close to a decade ago. I just finished off my, you know, final semester doing journalism and I started off as a you know junior writer and at that point I wanted to be an investigative journalist and I did quite a bit of work for you know a fair amount of years um, you know doing that type of investigative journalism at Corruption Watch and then I got to a point where I was really thinking about how I wanted to grow my activism because I was doing the journalism stuff I you know started to manage campaigns uh, you know getting out into communities developing different tools And it was when I started to work with whistleblower data, mainly after sort of taking over, becoming the head of department at Corruption Watch that deals with whistleblower complaints. And we were managing, uh, sort of managing a database of over 30,000 complaints. I realized that, you know, I needed to understand key skills because we were literally sitting on a sort of landmine of information that Mm -hmm. would be able to help the society to and the government and various role players to understand where the gaps are, what are the trends, the hotspots and and so on. So it was, you know, in in that my career development and my, my growth that I realized, well, I actually have this interest. I want to understand you know, how to do data and uh, analytics and machine learning and predictive learning. But I think also what, you know, added to this was thinking about going back to school and I wondered whether I should study economics or politics. And it was at the time of the US elections and, you know, Cambridge Analytica and how, you know, data was being mined and manipulated to break democracies across the world. Mm. And it was something that I, you know, started reading about quite a bit and then became, you know, really passionate about this issue. So it then got me thinking about how, you know, we, we're living in this data economy, data is everywhere. Um, at the moment, we are seeing that it's um, a lot of the time, uh, especially in the corporate space, in the space of social media, our data is being mind so that we can be manipulated but then when I was flipping back to the corruption watch side you know looking at all of the data that we've collected for whistleblowers thinking about well you know actually data may be able to you know do good in the world you know so as much as there's all of these challenges I think what you know propelled me into this field was trying to balance it a bit and find ways that social justice activists and civil society can start using data and predictive um learning and machine learning, etc., um, you know, to advance our causes and to advance human rights. So, you know, there was this discussion um, at our session with Jimmy the other day, and one of the participants, you know, spoke about how technology is good and it can be, you know, manipulated and, you know, be used for bad things. And I think similarly with data, you know, information is good. Information helps us to understand issues better. Um, but I think it what we're seeing is that it can also be abused in a way that we're starting to see play out in the political space and um, in the COVID space and so on. Data really forms a, a central part of the work that you do at, at Corruption Watch. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the work that you do really at, at Corruption Watch? What does it entail? So Corruption Watch is a non-profit civil society organization. We launched in 2012, so we're almost a decade old. Um, we have four main streams of work. Oh, sorry, three main streams of work, which is um, the we do legal and investigations type of stuff. Uh, we do mass communications, and then we do research, stakeholder relations, 
intake of whistleblower reports and, and so on. So the whistleblower reports form the center of the of the organization. That's the machine. Um, and like I said, we've had over 30,000 complaints over the last nine years. I sort of manage those complaints. It comes through to my department. We're then able to allocate whether that this is a corruption complaint and not corruption, you know, which sector it falls in, which province, which institution it's located in, etc. And then from there, the reports move to various departments, either for, um, you know, investigations, if we are doing them, they inform policy advocacy, some of our litigation and, and so on, or even investigative stories. But then also, you know, work that I oversee includes managing the research outputs for the organization. So we put out trends analysis reports. The most recent one we did was around corruption in local government, and we were able to highlight which were the most um, corrupt municipalities in the country based on this crowdsourced whistleblower complaints. And then we also run public mobilization campaigns on corruption, policing, healthcare, um, you know, schools and and so on. And then developing relationships um, like, you know, with the Civic Tech Innovation Network and others so that we can start to expand our work and ensure that we have impact, you know, in all sectors of society. Uh, I just want uh, to to take us back to DIY Africa, the the conference that we just had. Uh, The theme, of course, as as I keep saying, was DIY Africa. Could you tell us a little bit about, about what DIY Africa means as far as using digital tools to fight corruption is, is concerned? Exactly. I mean, you know, it's it's a really interesting concept because it is something where, you know, they, they, there's this whole idea of African solutions for African problems. And I do believe in that. Not to say that, you know, we are closed off to ideas and learnings from what's happening, you know, across the globe. That's very important. But it is important that we understand our issues you know we live in these in these societies we understand the difficulties and the challenges and then based on that in our learning and our experiences we're able to develop tools that will be most impactful for the communities that we're aiming to serve and you know like jimmy was talking about earlier as well as you know reflecting back on our session you know the the, the environments are completely different so for example, you know, I ha- we have this VESA tool in South Africa um, that would, is trying to improve policing in our country. And, you know, we can say, well, Jimmy, why don't you do this in Zambia? You know, it's working here. But if Jimmy tries to do the same thing in Zambia, it may not have the same impact just because fundamental things like information laws mm. aren't the same. So it is very important that we DIY Africa, um, that you understand your con- your context and that you're developing solutions that will be most impactful for your communities. Of course, like I said, you know, you there's definitely the learning from other spaces and, you know, Jimmy and I can exchange notes and, um, you know, what's worked here and, you know, what can you do? But it is important that we are developing tools that is responding to a specific environment and situation mm-hmm. and we're not taking a blanket approach to fighting corruption because the scenarios and the environments and the context are so different. Yes, thank you very much uh, for that uh, well-constructed thought, uh, Kavisha. And I do believe that everybody that uh, is listening to this podcast will uh, pick a thing or two that really helps. I'm interested though to know, Kavisha, in the nine years that uh, uh, Corruption Watch has been in South Africa since 2012, from the time you've been facing this animal head on, are there any anecdotes that uh, you could share with us in terms of the impact that you've been able to have in this period? Thanks, Jimmy. 
you know, impact, I think this is something that a lot of NGOs in civil society organizations um, struggle with because you do so much and it doesn't necessarily feel like you're achieving a lot, but you are. So th- there's definitely been impact, perhaps not in the, the way um, that we would hope and not um, as much as we would like, but, you know, we've we've definitely made inroads. I think impact, you know, if you're just playing a pure numbers game, you can look at the number of whistleblower complaints received by the organization. And it's definitely something, um, if you're comparing it to perhaps other institutions, you're, you're starting to see that, you know, whistleblowers are much more trusting of organizations that are independent of government. Um, and that's why we receive, you know, um, at least over 3,000 complaints per year from whistleblowers across the country. So if you're playing a numbers game, I think the, the number of reports that we're getting is fairly indicative of the fact that we have, you know, we are well-known people and communities are aware about us and that it's not just, you know, the big scandals of state capture that's being reported to us. It's everyday issues of corruption, like being pulled over on the street and asked for a bribe or going to get your driver's license and so on. So young and old people know about us, they're reporting to us. And I think that's something that's encouraging. And we find that the more sort of uh, work that we do, so be it a court case, are we putting out research that you know seems to increase the number of whistleblower complaints? But I also think that we've played a central role in changing the narrative of corruption because prior to Corruption Watch's existence, and even in our early days, it was very much the conversation was very much about how corruption was this you know silent economic crime, and it was all about the money and the billions and millions that were lost. And I think through our work, we were able to shift that away to bringing, making it about real people and also about how corruption has basically prevented people from accessing um, their basic human rights and allowing the state to ensure the, the realization of the constitutional rights of all people in the country. So we've shifted the narrative from one that's, you know, we're solely looking at the economic implications to one that, you know, centers corruption as impeding human rights in, in our country. And, you know, given where South Africa came from and, you know, oppression and inequality, you can see that corruption is one of the biggest barriers to realizing, for example, basic education or adequate health care or housing, and that impacts impacts and people's dignity and and so on. So I think that was, you know, something that was really important um, that we've been doing a lot of our work, you know, even when it comes to the whistleblower complaints, we try to, you know, shy away from just focusing on the numbers and we're trying to bring the real impact that that's having on individuals. And, you know, despite the sort of, at the moment, there was this recent survey that was released by the Afrobarometer I think a day or two ago that spoke about how corruption in South Africa is progressively getting worse under this administration. This is according to people's perceptions. I think that, you know, that on the one hand that that may be true, but on the other hand, I also think that because people are so much more aware of this corruption, you know, than what we were previously, and because it's become a real issue and a topic that everybody's talking about, you know, it it does seem like there's, you know, it's it's negative and it's really bad. But I also think that, it, there's this issue of awareness and because we are much more mindful about what's going on and it's being reported in a certain way and that civil society and activists and so on are, you know, they're not keeping quiet about this. We continue to amplify the voice around issues in relation to anti-corruption. You know, this is why at the moment it feels like everything is just quite bad. So I think, you know, a lot of where we are right now as a society, I would like to say, can be attributed to the work that Corruption Watch has done. But it is quite difficult to measure, you know, 
direct impact of, you know, just because it's, it's such a complex and intense situation that, you know, you can expose one person, but by the time the wheels of justice turns and that person faces jail time, you know, it takes, you know, a huge number of years. So our work right now is also moving towards doing more preventative types of work and not only being reactionaries, not only waiting for the corruption to happen, you know, using the data, working with stakeholders, trying to close those gaps and loopholes. I think, you know, in a good, in a perhaps maybe in the next decade, we would hope to see a reduction in the number of corruption cases, as well as seeing an improvement of perceptions around about where we are in terms of fighting corruption and how severe the problem actually is in the country. Right. Thank you very, very much uh, for that uh, comprehensive response, Kavisha. And so before I move on to the next question, I just want to give you a little bit of uh, a test of the context that we're talking about. And perhaps somebody listening to our podcast right now will appreciate in terms of how the landscape differs. So when you say that citizens or people in South Africa would be more comfortable or tend to be more comfortable to uh, blow the whistle as it were to state uh, non-state actors uh, such as yourselves as corruption which as opposed to state actors by that i understand you to be saying that it is legal and acceptable in south africa that somebody would be blowing the whistle by coming to corruption watch is that right technically okay. that is right yes technically that is right and technically yes. in zambia that is illegal that's how different we are mm. because <laughs> I can hear you sign, but that's mm. the truth. Okay. So when, when you were, yes, yes, even you Nazi, it's interesting. So if you look at section 13 of mm. our public, it's called the Public Disclosure Interests Act, the Public Interest Disclosure Act. It's also uh, the one we call the Protection of Whistleblowers Act. It makes it an offense in Zambia for a whistleblower to take their information to a non-state actor. So if you are a whistleblower and you go to Corruption Watch or you go to Transparency International or you go to the media, if they find you, then according to uh, Section 13 of that act, you have actually committed a crime. But further to that, the act also contains what the same Section 13 calls frivolous and vexatious disclosures. So if uh, somebody comes and says uh, to uh, an authority and says, I suspect there is wrong that's happening here, there could be corruption or fraud. It's up to that authority to decide whether your report is credible or not. And if they find that in their opinion or their view, your report is frivolous or vexatious, then they can actually take you, the whistleblower, to court because according to that act, you would have committed the crime. And, that's terrifying. And, and that is, <laughs> that's terrifying. I, I yes. am terrified. And, <laughs> and right now I'm thinking about the kind of privilege that, you know, Kevisha and I have uh, to live in a country like mm-hmm. South Africa where, you know, the constitution, I mean, I mean, it's not like the, the constitution of Zambia, right? So we are allowed to go to third parties, like she says. That's such a great privilege uh, to, to live. Mm-hmm. In, but it's also so scary for me to think that I, I have to trust the state no matter what, uh, yes. especially when Ex- the exactly. state... Exactly. You, you put it very well, Nati, when you say, I yeah. have to trust the state no matter what. Yeah, because if you that... don't, it's an offense. I mean, you know, Jimmy, just to touch on that, so... Yeah. It is. I mean, our, we also have something called the Protected Disclosures Act, which is our whistleblower act. And they do encourage you to approach the official channel. So, for example, government departments, most government departments have official anti-corruption you know, hotlines or where you can, you know, blow the whistle. But should you feel you've raised these issues and they have not addressed it, 
you are then within your rights to go and approach a non-state actor or even outside of that department, you know, to approach a chapter, what we call chapter nine institutions like the public protector or even the media, you know, with, with your complaint. The issue with, with our whistleblower legislation at the moment is that right now it only actually covers employees. So it, it only speaks to people in an employer and employee relationship. It doesn't actually speak to whistleblowers who are operating outside of that environment. So, for example, whistleblowers who are, you know, blowing the whistle on a tender corruption issue. And, you know, they're not employed in the state, but they're doing deals with the state. So there's no sort of protection for them or ordinary people just engaging with the sort of local government or engaging with the state in terms of policing or in accessing healthcare schools. So the major criticism with, you know, our legislation, when we do comparisons, you know, South Africa may seem, you know, far ahead. And we are grateful for these, you know, privileges that we have, but it's still not enough, you know, because, Mm. you know, the fact that not everybody is protected by that legislation and the fact that whistleblowers still like continue to face harassment and victimization and intimidation, you know, means that we haven't actually got this right. And there's still so much work to do to ensure that we create a conducive environment where people feel safe to report issues of corruption. Yeah, so, okay, I'm, I'm going to hold you guys here just, uh, just a little bit. I, I just actually dug up the act. So maybe let me read it out for you, Kavisha and, and, and Nati, and then let's move to the next question. So sure. here's what our section 13 says, guys. It says, an investigating authority may decline to act on a public interest disclosure received by it where the investigating authority considers that A, the disclosure is malicious, frivolous, vexatious, or made in bad faith or the disclosure is trivial. And now listen to this, an investigating, or rather a person who makes a public interest disclosure that falls within the meaning of paragraphs A, F, and L, which I just read, commits an offense and is liable upon conviction to a fine not exceeding 700,000 penalty units, that would be about 500,000 rand, or to imprisonment for a period not exceeding seven years, or to both. Let me not keep you depressed. Let's, let's look at the positive side. And talking about the positive side, I'd like you, Kavisha, to speak to us uh, in terms of what the VESA Online 2 is that you just spoke about uh, when we started the chat with Nati. So what is the VESA 2 and why was it so important to develop this tool in the South African context? Thanks, Jimmy. So the VESA tool, VESA is a sort of colloquial word that means to reveal or to expose we had created this in order to improve transparency and public participation uh, in the policing services in South Africa. And, you know, over the years, we've been receiving an increasing amount of whistleblower complaints about police abuse and violence. You know, recent studies, including the, you know, Afrobarometer study, Corruption Watch did a perception survey last year revealed that, you know, South Africans viewed the our police services to be the, the most corrupt institution in the country. But also in our engagements with communities, the way we travel across the country and try to understand people's experiences of corruption, we found that, you know, there, there was this huge imbalance of power between police and the communities that they're meant to serve. And basically, why we thought that it was important to sort of, you know, work on these issues is the police and other law enforcement systems were were established to fight crime and corruption. And when the institutions that were established to fight crime and corruption, are they themselves corrupt? You know you have a real problem and you won't be able to deal with other issues like corruption housing or corruption in healthcare, or even the broader state capture problems that we've been experiencing. 
So it was really important for us, you know, to try to understand these issues and address these issues. And that's how in 2018, um, I think the team met because we were feeling quite defeated about what to do about the high levels of reports that we were receiving, as well as the experiences that people were telling us about. Um, Because when you try to investigate a police corruption complaint, you know, the complaint itself is quite vague. Somebody would say, look, I was pulled over in this busy street in Sandton and they asked me for a bribe, but that was it. And you know it's corruption, but you can't actually act on it because you don't know the name of the police officer. You know, you don't have any of the information or the details to then be able to follow up and hold that person to account. But also because it's so widespread to just arrest or, you know, convict one corrupt cop is not going to change the environment at all. So then we started to brainstorm. We were looking at what other countries were doing. So in India, they had this really great system called I paid a bribe that was tracking, you know, bribery across the, the country, not just in policing in other sectors, but they were also providing people with information about their rights. Then, you know, in the US, the, the Los Angeles Police Department, um, if you logged onto their website, you were actually able to see all of the officers that worked for the LAPD and what was their ranks. And they had pictures for these police officers. And we thought, well, you know, that that's quite important. You know, police officers in South Africa are meant to wear name tags um, and they refuse to. But, you know, maybe, you know, in terms of transparency, that would be good. And then in Brazil, we uh, found out about in, an initiative that's currently being done in in Rio, where communities go and there's one week, I think it falls in September, where they go and they rate and evaluate their police stations because they have, it seems to be a huge issue around police violence as well in those communities in police cor- uh, corruption. So there's a citizen-driven initiative around rating your police stations. So we assessed all of these different interventions and then we pulled them together into what is the VESA tool. So on the tool, you're, there's a few things that you're able, you're able to do. You can go and you can report police corruption. But what's different with this whistleblowing channel in comparison to the others is that you're able to geolocate exactly where this happened, where the corruption um, happened. And what we are then able to pick up is the sort of trends and patterns. So if there's specific streets that seem to be a hotspot for corruption or specific police stations where people keep reporting, that then forms sort of intelligence for law enforcement agencies, for journalists, for others who will be able to act on that information um, and hopefully, you know, conduct sting operations, you know, whatever it may be. Um, so that we are now not only looking at individual cases, but starting to group them together so we can holistically deal with these situations. You're able to access your rights. So, for example, if you're pulled over at a roadblock, um, if you've been arrested, um, if you're locked up, if you're a street vendor, you know, these are your rights. We looked at specific you know, scenarios where people most are most likely to encounter police corruption and we've developed material that speaks to your rights and your responsibilities. And should you experience that, this is where you should report it to and this is who can provide you with assistance. We then also allowed people to rate their police stations. And this is something that the public, you know, loves to do, it seems. So mm. with this information, you know, at the moment, you're able to see which police stations are doing, you know, fairly well versus which police stations aren't doing you know, that well at all. We don't have enough ratings to do a sort of a comprehensive assessment, but we see that this is the one thing that people actually like to come on to do, you know, right. based on their experience and their response. Um, and it's not all bad, you know, sometimes people will say, well, the assistance was really good and the communication was really good, but their feedback, right. they weren't that great. So there, we now, you know, police stations can be rated all 1,150. 
And then we also provide the public with an opportunity to nominate ethical officers and officers with integrity. And we think, you know, this is quite important. The development of the VESA tool wasn't to just, you know, point fingers at the police and say, well, you're all bad and, and so on and so forth. It right, was right. about, you know, making sure that we create a, uh, a you know, that positive uh, culture and that, you know, there's positive role models and that there is a culture of integrity within the police because we know that there's so many officers that are good cops who go and they risk their lives to keep our community safe. And we've been receiving really inspiring and thoughtful um, anecdotal information about how police officers have gone above and beyond, you know, to serve their community. So that's really good. And then, Jimmy, the last thing, which I would say is perhaps the most important thing on the VESA tool, is that you're able to access information about all 1,150 police stations in the country. For example, you'll be able to locate your local police station. You'll be able to see what are their budgets, what are their resources, what is the population that they serve, um, how how many personnel they have, and so on. And again, why this is important is because in 2018, there was an equality court judgment in that rule that in Cape in the Western Cape, police were discriminating against poor black people. And that was just looking at, you know, police resources. So you found the more affluent and richer areas were better resourced in comparison to the more poorer and vulnerable communities who actually need, you know, better policing because of the issues that they're dealing with, you know, gang violence, drug abuse, and, and so on. And it's not just in the Western Cape. With this data, you're able to see it happens across the board. So, you you know, with that, we're wanting communities to work together to understand these issues, to advocate for better policing. We've also found that, you know, police officers themselves in these police stations weren't completely aware that they weren't being resourced well in comparison to their neighboring police station. So, you know, we believe our our hypothesis at the moment is that by creating transparency and providing information in an accessible way to communities, they will be able to then act on it and perhaps improve the state of policing in their community. And that that is the sort of long-term impact that we're looking for. You know, it's not at the moment about how many reports you're getting and what is your website views. It's about how does that information translate into change and impact on an individual basis within a community. And I'm looking at this tool right now. I'm I'm on the website and I'm looking at so the geolocators and I see that they are reporting. So you'll see that geolocator goes to a specific street, right? And then um, it tells you what the the corrupt act there was, right? So it tells you that here was a abuse of position, a dereliction of, uh, what's this this term? Dereliction of duty, yeah. Dereliction of duty, Right. So, so it's very interesting. I'm seeing Douglas Dale has a five star rating. So shout out to them there. Um, so different. So there are different ratings for different stages. So others haven't been rated, obviously. But but so you're, you're seeing a lot of people using uh, uh, this this tool already, uh, I imagine, uh, Kevisha. Yeah. So, I mean, within the first six months of launching, we've had about 10,000 people accessing the site, over 100 um, reports on police corruption you know, close to 500 ratings on police stations, um, 30 nominations of um, good cops. You know, it's if you're trying to compare it to, you know, a an e-commerce site, obviously we're not going to be doing that great. But I think, you know, in the pilot phase, it definitely exceeded our expectations mm. and it showed us that there is an appetite 
for this type of, of site and this type of technology. You know, people are returning to it. They, you know, they, there is definitely an interest in understanding what's going on in your individual police station. And also, you know, one of the things that, you know, apart from rating stations, people are really keen to understand their rights in relation to policing. You know, um, a lot of people get pulled over and asked for bribes. And, you know, our information basically helps to navigate what they should do should that happen. So, you know, Nati, it's, it's, it's going good, I would say, um, in the, within the first six months. There's still a lot of work that we want to do in terms of improving its accessibility, its usability, as well as, you know, trying to, if, if it works in the policing space, trying to expand it, you know, into other sectors, for example, health. You know, with mm. COVID, we saw what an issue it was where some of our health systems were basically collapsing. And you want to then be able to give people access to all of their clinics and the hospitals in the country and how many doctors and nurses and ambulances and so on that they have. And, you know, similar with, I think, local government or with education in schools. So, you know, depending on how, what's the response to policing and how it works and what is the, feed, the feedback that we get from um, our communities, we will then start to look at how we can expand this into other areas as well. Uh, I was reading earlier uh, in preparation for this uh, that the, the, the tool itself was made possible by the Google Impact Challenge, which aimed to encourage local innovators to solve a social problem using tech. Uh, could you tell us a, a little bit about uh, that whole process and, and how you ended up with this specific tool uh, in its current format? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it, it's, it was really interesting, to be honest, because um, so my team uh, that I lead up at Corruption Watch, we're all we're a group of young people, um, all under the age of 35. And, you know, of course, things like technology um, and innovation is stuff that you know, is is inherent. We 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 love this. We love tools. We love tech. We love to see how it works and plays out. And I remember when we had first conceptualized Veza. Of course, at that point, it wasn't called Veza. It was just mm. an idea. And we spoke to the rest of the organization about it, and it was kind of like everybody scoffed at us. Like this is never going to happen. This is not going to be possible. And you know, to be honest, we just sort of persevered and we just pushed through. And then the Google Impact Challenge came up and, you know, it was sort of circulated in the organization. Does anybody have any interesting ideas? And, you know, we put our hands up and we said, well, we have this really interesting idea. And the worst thing that can happen is they'll say no, but let's let's try it. And we did it and we sort of submitted an application and we got into, I think it was first the top 30 and then the top 12. And the top 12 then guaranteed you seed funding of about... Um, I think it was about 1.2 million or something to that effect. Mm. And um, they then invited all of the 12 participants to an event in Joburg where you had to do a two-minute pitch um, to a panel of judges, basically convincing them to sort of invest in your idea. So it's like a Shark Tank type of vibe. Right. And everybody else who was there already had a platform or some type of tech that was already in use. So we were the only ones that actually didn't, ours was just still an idea. Um, it wasn't, to be honest, even fully conceptualized at that point, but we knew the six <laughs> things that we wanted to do and that's what we did. So wow. we got off there wow. and you know, and I did the presentation and I think, you know, that, that gene of mine that just allows me to 
um, you know, that that makes me speak very fast and I'm going to stereotype a bit here and, you know, the Indian gene that allows you to sell anything. <laughs> so <laughs> I, said, I, I got into that stage and, you know, I, I sort of in, in two minutes, I, you know, said, this is what Bezai is and this is why you need it and this is what it will do. And we were then selected as one of four winners to then receive, you know, the overall prize. And I think that may have been around, um, I think, 2.5 million or something to that effect um, of, of funding, you know, of seed funding. And I was completely shocked because I, firstly, I never thought that we would get that far. And secondly, I didn't think that we would, you know, get the main prize. So that was then, you know, I think what we needed, you know, even though everybody else had their platforms, ours was still an idea, but it was in, an innovative idea. And we believed in it because we knew that this would have potentially have a sort of a, a, a good impact in, in our community. And we just wanting to ensure transparency and accountability and, and so on. And, you know, the rest is history, I can say. It's sort of the development. I mean, I, I have to say that getting the, the money and the seed funding was the easiest part of the whole process because after we got that, the actual development of the tool and the testing and trying to get it right and getting the data and then now sort of looking for more funding to make sure it's sustainable, that, that's sort of proving to be really difficult. Um, but, you know, between the time we conceptualized it, which I think was in June of 2018 and in November of 2018, we got the money. That seemed like, you know, pretty easy. Um, but it's been, you know, a bit of a battle. Um, <laughs> after that in just trying to implement and launch this tool. That's interesting. Wow. Jimmy? Yeah, very interesting indeed. And thanks, uh, uh, Kavisha, once again. Uh, so getting the tool to work and all of that was the most difficult part. Uh, up to this point, at least, you, you, you've shown that. But what I want to know, what we'd love to know with, with Nadi here is how then are you interacting or how much interaction are you getting from the general public? How important is, has the ability to access open data been for Corruption Watch? To what extent has that been a helpful tool or a hindrance? Yeah, I mean, you know, Jimmy, like COVID has been horrible <laughs> uh, on a number of fronts. But I think, you know, we had this idea about how we would get this tool out into communities. And part of our model was, you know, before COVID, we would be in communities, we'd do trainings, we'd understand the experiences and so on. So when we had developed the tool and its rollout plan, a lot of it involved these face-to-face -face interactions that will physically get the tool into people's hands and guide them through it and help them understand it. COVID, of course, has, you know, destroyed all of that. And we try to, you know, work around this through, um, you know, we have these partnerships with community radio stations across the country and we purchase some time, like 20 minutes um, and a slot on that station. And, you know, we, we try and do our training using the community radios and, you know, people call in. Um, but, it, you know, it's, it's not the same of actually just doing a live demo with people and then being able to answer questions. So we're still working around that. We're hoping that, you know, once numbers start to increase and it's deemed to be safe, we can get back into communities. But that's something that I think is slightly lagging. You know, everybody who has access to their smartphones and who's on Twitter and Facebook probably have seen, you know, our, our ads. And that's important. But I think, you know, we really need to get into the communities who will definitely benefit from this tool. Yeah, so uh, apart from uh, the community, apart from uh, all the available, especially online uh, data portals that are available for, for people to access open data, how much of work has, has that looked like? I know you spoke about 2.5 million rand um, in, in the Zambian context now. Uh, if any Zambians will be listening to this, that will be close to 3 million uh, Zambian kwacha. So was that enough? 
for you to go in, harvest all the data you could out of uh, the globe open as it is? And did you have to do much more than that? And how did that be, uh, help or, uh, you know, uh, support the development of the tool? I mean, the, the development and, and the technologies were, you know, were quite expensive to, to build of the tool. Um, gathering the data apart from, I mean, that didn't cost money. It just cost a lot of time, I would say, of, you know, running after, you know, different people at the police ministry, begging for information, submitting promotion of access to information acts, requests and getting that. So, I mean, there was a lot of, you know, it, a lot of capacity, you know, from the Corruption Watch team and staff in terms of trying to do that follow up. Um, so, of course, they, there is a cost there, but there was a lot of uh, money went into the actual development of the tool which is you know customized we've built you know secure systems it's encrypted so you know it's very difficult to hack into it and retrieve the information um, but also that it's customized to a point where you know if we want to package it and do a sort of like I said focus on a different sector we'll be able to do that without you know messing up too much of the, of the tech design that we have at the moment a lot of the money that we did get went into public communications and marketing and we then had to do more, like allocate a bit more of that money towards public communications and marketing when COVID hit. And we realized we wouldn't be able to go out into communities because there was a huge, you know, budget of just outreach and getting the tool out there. So, you know, we've been limited at the moment to like digital and, you know, traditional forms of marketing, but it hasn't been sufficient. I mean, you know, we got the grant in 2018. We're now in 2020. The sort of grant has come to an end. And unfortunately, you know, Jimmy, there is this issue where funders aren't necessarily keen on putting money towards innovation at the moment. Unless you're in that tech space, in that tech field, your traditional funders are sort of still wanting to go the more traditional activism routes, you know, be precisely because of these issues of the digital divide. And we know that that is an important issue, but there's still this hesitancy of investing in innovation because it still feels a bit too risky you know so I, I don't want to put my money into an online tool I'd rather give you money to print pamphlets and give it out to community members because that way we know at least it's landing in the hands of people so we are still battling a bit on, on that side and that's proving to be quite a challenge you know we've spent a lot of money and a lot of human resources into developing this this VESA tool and I think now one of the key challenges is not just maintaining it in terms of the data perspective, but just making sure it's sustainable in the long term. So it doesn't feel like, well, we could only survive this for a year and then it's you know going to go down the drain. So there's a lot of work that goes into this, a lot of challenges that you're having to navigate from, you know, collection of data. Now we have those, you know, this poppy act in place, which is making it a lot more difficult to get data from the government. Um, you know, so, so that's a huge issue. The funding is a huge issue. So a number of challenges, Jimmy. Right, right. I, and I'll pose our last question to, to, to both of you and, and ask, you know, what, what can you say to young people who are still starting out in, in their innovation journey right now, who, who embody this DIY Africa spirit we've been talking about uh, at this year's conference, uh, but are facing challenges uh, in this journey of, of innovation? Any words of wisdom that you can, that you can give? Um, I think just from, from my own experience is that I think you just have to keep pushing. And if, if you really believe in your idea and that your idea is going to have impact and if your idea is rooted in a community, so it's not, you know, it, it's an idea that is meant to serve and help people. And you've, you've made the effort to try and understand their needs. I think it is just an issue about keep pushing and keep persevering. I know that sounds hard and that sounds difficult, but, mm. you know, I 
from when I think back and reflect on, on my journey with the VESA tool, I think because I felt so strong about it that I knew that this was a, it wasn't the overall solution. It wasn't a blanket solution that was going to solve the problem, but it at least was an innovative way to approach something that has been a problem for a very long time. And I believed in that. And, you know, the team that I worked with believed in that. That just sort of helped us and gave us that energy to push through um, and to continue to develop and expand on this idea. So I would say to, you know, to not give up. It, the journey is not, a, is not an easy one. You'll have like one win and then you'll have like 10 things that set you back. But again, if you know that this is something that is going to help people and it's rooted in, you know, a, it, it's going to improve the lives of others around you. Um, I think that you just need to, you know, continue pushing on and not mm-hmm. let anybody say to you, well, you can't do this. Like somebody close mm-hmm. the door and go knock on 10 other doors until you actually see this dream, this, you, you know, your, your vision realized. Right, right. Jimmy? Yes. Uh, okay. So you said words of wisdom. I'm not very words. sure if uh, <laughs> you said yeah. words, w- w- words of wisdom. I'm not, I'm not so sure if I can describe <laughs> any wisdom. Man. <laughs> but, but anyways, <laughs> anyways, Nati and, and Kavisha, I think two young people that are listening to us uh, right now that uh, that are in the uh, you know, civic tech space and they are innovating. I'll, I'll, I'll just echo what Kavisha said. You've got to keep at what you're doing and just keep a positive mind. And I think the, 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 the genesis for me is, is loving your country. Uh, staying in the fight and staying on course always bears fruit. I can tell you guys that I had a MySpace account. I don't know if either one of you had a MySpace account. I was too young for that. I'm too young. Yeah, before our time. <laughs> exactly. You're showing your age, Jimmy. <laughs> not, not really. I'm just showing that you never know the one that hits go, really. Right. Because, because right, I think right. MySpace my, my in our time was big. But, uh, you know, uh, Mark Zuckerberg wasn't intimidated by it. Uh, mm-hmm. And also now we have Twitter, but even after Twitter, TikTok came, you know. Yeah. So you never know uh, which two really is going to change our, 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 our civic space in terms of how we fight corruption using tech. It could be a new, a, a new version of VESA. Uh, it could be a new tool entirely different, you know, that, that will bring uh, corruption to the fore and just get everybody interested in, in, in what you are, you are developing. So I think my words of wisdom, if they amount to that, is to everybody that is in the tech industry that is so passionate about corruption to keep at it. We never know when we are going to find our own Facebook equivalent, but I'm hopeful that it will happen in our lifetime. Right. You know, I'd be Viva. lying if I yes. <laughs> Viva. <laughs> I'd be lying if I said I didn't enjoy this this particular episode. Thank you so much, Jimmy and Kavisha. Now, I want to take some time to thank all of you who joined us at the Civic Tech Innovation Forum this year. I want to assure you that we are definitely going to be doing this again next year. Uh, We love seeing these unique initiatives at the various exhibitions and and events, and we definitely loved hearing from activists, researchers, journalists, and so many uh, civic actors from across the continent. So do join us again when we do this uh, next year. We'll be right back.
Welcome back. I'd like to leave you with this popular proverb that you may find useful today as you do your work in innovation. He who is afraid of asking is ashamed of learning. That's your innovative thought of the day. Stay with us. We'll be back to say goodbye. That concludes this episode. Don't forget to subscribe and review the podcast and please see the episode description for all the places you can follow and engage with the Civic Tech Innovation Network. Until next time, goodbye. This podcast was brought to you by Civic Tech Innovation Network in partnership with Voice of Vets.